Hello, and welcome to We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burston. This is the podcast in which my guests are invited to wax lyrical about their heroes and heroines, people who've inspired them and helped shape their lives. I'm an author and journalist, and there are many people I consider heroes, both real and fictional, famous and not so famous. Among them is the late, great David Bowie. And each one says something about me, because the people we regard as heroes often reveal who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses, the struggles we faced, and the times we've shown courage we didn't even know we had. It's been said before, but it bears repeating, not all heroes wear capes. We can all be heroes, even if it is just for one day. James Baldwin was a prophet. Woke is a much maligned and misunderstood word, but I think that James Baldwin basically woke himself up. He pursued fame by going to the library. Much like James Baldwin, my guest today is no stranger to the library. Nor is he a stranger to the stage, the recording studio, or indeed, Top of the Pops. He first came to attention with the band Thieves, before pursuing a solo career. He later joined forces with Bernard Butler and released the hit single, Yes. Since then, he's collaborated with a host of other musicians, including, most recently, Hi-Fi Sean. He's also a fellow Bowie fan, whose rendition of Sweet Thing is guaranteed to give me the shivers. He is, of course, David McAlmont. Hello, David. Welcome to We Can Be Heroes. Hi, Paul. Always good to be with you and uh, to um, be participating in your latest venture. So this is quite exciting. I said at the start of this podcast that not all heroes wear capes, but I'm wondering if you've ever worn a cape, because I've got a feeling you, you possibly may have done it at some point in your career. Um, I've actually worn a cape as recently as late March because I'm making a movie with Leicester University's Research Centre for Museums and a guy called Mark Thomas, who is the um, video director for a lot of Elbows videos, and Robert Taylor, a uh, black queer photographer. I know Robert. Yeah, you know Robert. Yeah. Um, with photographs in the V&A and National Portrait Gallery collections, but we're making a film called Permissible Beauty. We identify the 11 Stuart beauties who are exhibited at Hampton Court Palace as a chapter, a restoration chapter in British beauty. And we're arguing the case for a 21st century chapter to be black gender illusionists. And I am doing some narration. And so when we were looking for the right look for me in the film, we decided that we could ape Peter Lilly, who created the 17th century portrait. So we looked him up and Hampton Court had a cloak. So I was walking around in riding boots, a linen smock, a period smock and this cloak. So that's the look for the film. That sounds fantastic. I can't wait to see that. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, it's, it's filmed. Uh, we expect it to be finished by the end of the year and, and we'll premiere it in January. We're here to talk about your heroes, heroines. And I know that you, you're very thorough in your research. Well, I was thinking about who my heroes are. And there are some obvious names that spring to mind immediately. But I thought I'd just check in with the um, dictionary definitions to see where they all fell. So... The biggest list I came up with is the person who is admired for their outstanding achievement or noble qualities. And then um, a shorter list I have, 
And once again, I can select from that, but I think you've probably already identified one of the characters. And that's the chief male, we'll add female to that, character in a book, play or a film who is typically identified with good qualities and with who the reader is expected to sympathize. And the third one, which is an easy and a single name, is in mythology and folklore, a person of superhuman qualities and often semi-divine origin, in particular one whose exploits were the subjects of ancient Greek myths. That's a humdinger. That's a home run. I've put down somebody for each one of those definitions, and you can ask me. So who would you like to go first? Tell me who the first one is and why you've chosen that particular person. I think I'd have to begin with my mother and my sister because there's been estrangement that's lasted for a long time, like two decades and then some years because of my way of living and their way of being. And of course, there's geographical distance as well. But in recent years, I began to make peace with the crucial role that they both played in my life. So I have to identify my mother. For a start, she brought me into this world and kept me alive and protected me from all of the societal difficulties that she could going through her own. And only in adulthood have I really come to terms with what it was that she would have faced as a single Black mother in 1960s, 1970s Britain. But central to our relationship was her musical taste. My mother loved Perry Como, Bing Crosby, Dean Martin, Sinatra, Nat King Cole. She was famous um, in her village before she left Guyana for singing Walking My Baby Back Home. And when I hear my mother sing, I can hear my phrasing. I can hear proto David McCalmont phrasing. But not only that, she also, whenever I asked her what anything meant, she would send, tell me to look in the dictionary. And I have a, a real passion for words. I love them. I play Wordle. I love Scrabble. I have the Oxford English Dictionary app in my phone. And that goes directly back to that very specific instruction. And it might have been uh, something that I didn't have a view about, but people who have a conversation with me are fascinated by my love for the language. And that's attributable to my mum. And then my sister comes into the mix. I mean, it's it, it's family. We were the family, my sister, my mother and I, in Croydon and Norfolk in the late 60s, up until the late 70s when we left the country. And my sister uh, is an artist. She's a, an, an artist and an illustrator of children's books in St. Lucia. And when she was becoming interested in art, she became obsessed with the Madonna and Child. And she was constantly drawing the Madonna and Child. And then my mother had a friend who ran a post office and they had these postcards that were Medici postcards. And that was the first time I heard the name Medici. And to encourage my sister, he'd bring these postcards over. And eventually it got to a situation where lots of these postcards were very beautifully framed by this gentleman. And so I had the Italian masters on my wall. And I felt like that was my sister's thing, but I, knew who Titian was, who Da Vinci was, when I was still a single digit kid. And then we went to Guyana and there were other interests and Europe felt quite distant. And then I came back to Europe and my sister and I would fantasize about these European places that we would visit one day. 
leading Tower of Pisa, David of Florence, the Mona Lisa, all of that sort of thing. And I kind of got that done, you know, within a year, you know, I thought, oh, I'd seen that, seen that, seen that. But then the discovery of having to go to these places to see these things was that you dis that was that I found this art on the walls and the art would always stop me in my tracks. I was particularly drawn to uh, an artist called Fra Angelico. And I forgot about why. And then recently I realized, oh my God, this is my sister's influence. My sister bought the Italian Renaissance masters into the house. She was obsessed with the Virgin and Child. And that is why I went to university to study the history of art. Because I wanted to write a dissertation about Fra Angelico. But if I look back to the source and the reason for that, it's my sister. And so I sent my mother and my sister a message whilst I was doing some permissible beauty work to say, thank you, I've just had this realisation that my job is words and music and art. And if it wasn't for the two of you, I wouldn't be living this fantastic life that I am. And I'd never said that to them. So I sat outside a stately home and filmed a video and sent it through. Have they responded yet? Yes, it was it was huge. My sister, my sister wept and thanked me. And my mother got on the phone and reminded me that when I left Guyana to come back to the UK, she said, what are you going to do in England? And I said, I'm going to be um, I'm, I'm going into communications. And my mother said, um, you did it, you know, and, and my mother said, where is the book? And so many people have said to me over time, where's the book, David? When are you going to write a book? And I've always thought, yeah, 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 I, you know, I just write blogs on Facebook and that's good enough for me. But now that my mother said it, it's got a whole different weight now. It's like, I really need to write a book because my mother is wondering where it is. <laughs> you, you, you laugh. I mean, I don't know how you do it. You kind of write books all the time, you know, which is like that kind of PhD thing. You kind of do your research and you sit down and you have the discipline and you write the book. And I don't have that. But um, I have to find it now, for my mother's sake. I love thinking about your mum and your sister receiving this video message from you. That's a really beautiful image. And I'm really pleased that you had that great response back and that things are back on track and you're in a better place with them now. Yeah, and a friend did say to me, I, I did um, begin to feel that a lot of the issues that I was having around my hedonism, shall we say, had a lot to do with the fact that I um, wasn't at peace with my family. And that the self-loathing that I have to work through a lot of the time probably had a lot to do with me having a um, harsh view of the people that I came from. But I said to my friend Antoine, I said, well, I don't want to get in touch with my family because I need them. I'd like to approach them with, with, with more purity or something. I don't know. And he said, yes, but you do need them. You do actually need them. And... There's no escaping the importance of family. There was a time when I was trying to find a partner who didn't have a family, so I didn't have to deal with family. <laughs> and then I kept meeting people who had these great relationships with their um, parents. And then maybe they weren't that great with their parents, but their parents were able to give them a version of themselves that was a knowledgeable version that was loving and affectionate and emotionally connected that nobody else can. And the minute I got in touch with my folks again, you know, I began to re-see myself for the better. I mean, 
my mother loves her son. And like I said, I forgot about the communications thing, but suddenly I was hearing a version of myself and able to appreciate myself a bit more than just this person who was floating around in society without any blood connection. Well, you said there about the hedonistic urge and where that may have come from. I, I know for a fact that a large part of my excessive behaviours in certain areas of my life were very much driven by trying to avoid emotional things from my past. Addiction or, or, or compulsive behaviours are, are very rarely about the actual substance. They're usually about something else. Yeah, but I feel that we've, um, Ricky Beadle Blair, another hero of mine, for just being a prolific creative entity who doesn't stop. He's a creative machine. And I interviewed him for a podcast I was doing, and he said that uh, we'd all spent two years on the naughty step. That's how he saw lockdown. And I was conscious, you know, about a month into lockdown that I didn't want to emerge from lockdown the way that I went in. And being in touch with my family was key because they were going through that pandemic too. And I wasn't speaking to them. I was estranged. But emerging from the pandemic, I stay at home a lot more. I stop looking to others as the possibility of abundance. And I see myself I keep telling myself that I am the abundance. If I'm not looking and thinking constructively about my future, well, nobody else really is. Heroism can be fleeting or it can be quite significant. But two heroes I'd like to identify recently are a guy called Jonathan Haidt, just a, a socio-psychologist working out of New York University, H-A-I-D-T, Jonathan Haidt, who uh, did some research into why America has been so stupid for the last 10 years. That's the, name of the, that's the name of the article that appeared in The Atlantic. And I admire him because it's not just intellectual gymnastics that he's presenting on the page. He actually went into research and identified something very specific that happened in 2009-10 that isn't the social media user's fault. You know, the honeymoon did happen. So when Twitter and Facebook first began to take off and we began to communicate in that new way, there was a honeymoon period. There was a greater democracy. There was greater autonomy for the creative and so on. But the minute that uh, they introduced the like button and the algorithm, that's when we all began to tear each other apart. So it's not our fault. And ever since I've read that, I've been tentative about social media because of the Cambridge Analytica, Brexit, hacky, all of that stuff. But at the same time, my attitude has changed and my approach to using it has changed. And I'm more open to having a conversation. I'm less likely to block somebody just because they say something that makes me mad because I realise that's all part of the problem. I don't think that these sites are going anywhere. I think they're with us. I remember that period in the 90s when I was like, why should I have an email address? I have a phone number. If anybody wants to get in touch with me, they can call me. Now I've got dozens of email addresses, right? So I saw somebody else having a conversation about the same sort of subject and somebody said, what is the solution? And he said, we have to love each other. We have to be compassionate about each other, even if we think someone's stupid. And just because we don't have a professional gatekeeper, you know, who, and, and we can say whatever we want, 
it doesn't mean that we have to, or that we just have to jettison people and ghost people because they wrote something online that was disembodied, i.e. you couldn't hear the tone of voice and so you dismissed them. And so I really appreciated that. And then there was another guy called Seth Stevens Davidovich, wrote a piece in the New York Times and the title was Rich People Aren't Who You Think They Are and Being Happy Is Not What You Think It Is. And what was great about that was that we view happiness as a chronological thing, i.e. I will find happy and I will like get all of these self-help techniques and I will be happy perpetually, you know, once I found the magical formula. And what this writer is saying is that happiness is more lateral than that. It's like, you will be happy on a day when it is over 75 degrees, that will happen. You'll be happy if you're in love, you'll be happy if you're having sex, enjoyable sex, you'll be happy if you are by a body of water. Work will not make you happy. You know, there are moments in the work experience that make you happy, like the publication of the book, probably, the premiere of the movie, the concert, the release of the album. Writing the album might make you happy, but that's only part of the work, part of the work of a curator who puts on a blockbuster Leonardo da Vinci exhibition is sitting in a dusty room for years filling out forms. That's not going to make you happy. The wealthiest Americans are not all Kardashians. We think wealthy America is famous America. I want to be famous because it means wealth and glamour. But in fact, most of the wealthy Americans are these really grey human beings who never leave Omaha and run an auto dealership or a soft drinks transportation company. They never leave their locale. They earn 1.58 million a year. Nobody knows who they are. Nobody cares. If anybody saw them, that would not be attractive to them as Kim Kardashian would. You've obviously experienced fame. What was your experience of it? How, how would you characterize fame? Yeah, I mean, I think that I've lived my life in an anti-fame manner. Often it's been kind of unwelcome. Um, and people can interpret that as being ungrateful. And I'm not ungrateful. I'm thrilled that Yes has been so big for so long, you know, because um, it pays. It still means that I'm making records and when my plugger takes my record to Radio 6, they're like, oh, we really love David McCallum and they play Yes. The tastemakers are like, okay, David McCallum is the guy who sings Yes, that's okay with us, we'll play it. But really, um, his new music will just say something nice about it and have done with it. And that's fame. Fame is being on the floor of somebody's apartment who you've just met at the champion when you're drunk out of your mind in a um, very compromising position. And the door opens and his flatmate walks in and says, oh my God, aren't you David McCallum? That's fame. Fame is walking down the street and kind of, uh, you know, knowing that young people are very energetic and very honest and very open and just like, you know, just giving them their space and going about your way. Whereupon one of them says, that guy was on top of the pops. And the next thing you know, you're surrounded by all of these people like saying, were you on top of the pops? That's fame. In some respects, fame does work in a way that I enjoy, but very often it's like, logging onto Facebook or Instagram, being tagged by somebody in a photo who says David McCallum is the most underrated singer of all time. I just don't need to hear that ever. 
you know, I don't need to hear that I'm the best singer in the country. And I don't need to hear that I'm the most underrated singer of all time. Just, but fame creates that traffic. For people like me, I think it's kind of a necessary evil. You know, it certainly helps, but it does have its downsides. And to me, more downsides than up. The heroes that we've discussed so far aren't people that are famous, especially. They're thinkers and writers and, and family. Do you recall who the first sort of famous figure was that you felt inspired by in some way? I always cite Danny LaRue because when I was growing up, I, I knew it was a man who wore dresses and dressed like a woman. And the, the first character that I created for myself to play was a drag queen called Dave Dila. <laughs> I, I was wearing my cousin's high heels and my cousin's frocks and I'd walk into the room and say, I am Dave Dila. And this was about this was about Danny LaRue. So that whole that fluid approach that I had to um, appearance when I first appeared in um, pop, that coming out of the closet, being away from my um, Christian family, and being in London and going for it, you know, that links directly back to to Danny LaRue. And often, you know, being me, people don't want to hear that. They want me to say that Stevie Wonder was, was the first most important thing to me. But in fact, as singers go, the first most important singer to me was Art Garfunkel. Number one, 1975, I Only Have Eyes For You. Just, I didn't realise that a man could make that sound. And so I aspired to do that thing that Art Garfunkel did. And those are the things that really made an impact. They might seem small, but for me, they're enormously significant. Younger people may not know quite how significant Danny LaRue was. I mean, he was so mainstream. People talk about drag race now as if there'd never been drag on <laughs> television. I mean, he was yeah. the pr you know, primetime television star. Yeah, I remember other people like Stanley Baxter from that period, but then I don't think I noticed um, him nearly as much as I did Danny, because Danny was, like you say, really mainstream on all the time you know, dressing as a nurse, you know, wonderful legs, dressing as a Ziegfeld folly. <laughs> this drag act that I used to do, Dave DeLar, I did that in Guyana because in the countryside in Guyana, they didn't have any TV. So my sister and I took to recreating characters from back in England. And I somehow, Lord God, I don't know how I, how I got through that. I, I created Dave DeLar and Dave DeLar did the crazy horse dance which was that thing where you'd like do your legs up with a petticoat and then turn around and show your arse. <laughs> and I was doing that for these people, this, this extended family in the Guyanese countryside and wondering why they weren't entertained. And I think about it now and I'm like, oh my giddy aunt, no wonder. Because I think one of the things about the closet is that gay men go in. And I don't think that a lot of gay men are conscious of going in, but the family are already onto you. I think in many cases, well, unless you actually say so, or you actually get caught out, they won't touch it because it's just, um, it's probably not the case with the current generation at all. But in the 60s and 70s, my mother would have seen my taste because I watched uh, Screen Goddesses with my mother and the Thursday Night Musical with my mother. She'd have seen what I responded to. I think she attempted to discipline it out of me, shall we say? You mentioned Screen Goddesses there. This might be a good link to segway <laughs> a handy segue my mother got me the sound of music when i was 
a kid and I don't know why I have to have that conversation with her, but my mother had the presence of mind to get me the original Broadway cast recording. So before I heard Julie Andrews singing The Sound of Music, I heard Mary Martin singing The Sound of Music. And then I went to the cinema to see Julie Andrews and I discovered a, a really important singing teacher, I would say. I adore Julie Andrews. I am so gutted for her that that voice went. I think it's just a great cruelty of fate that of all the singers that there are in the world, you know, Shirley Bassey, another major heroine, but much later than Julie, has kept her voice. But Julie just had a botched operation and lost hers. And I think that's a tragedy, but she makes me melt. I just recently did Le Jazz Hot from Victor Victoria at a celebration of the music of Leslie Bricousse. Um, I have something good from The Sound of Music on my playlist. And I often, you know, speak about her creating the most important moment. You know, it's just my argument, but the most important moment in musical cinema history, because the Do, Re, Mi song is not just onomatopoeia. It goes all the way back to the um, sixth century. It's this system of notation that the staves, the five staves on the musical manuscript come from. Rodgers and Hammerstein wrote the song, and then when they decided to bring it to the screen, they were delivering the message, the great songwriting message. So one of the things I'm very interested in is how many musicians like myself heard that and discovered the secret of songwriting. They say, but it doesn't make any sense. And she says, so we put in words, one word for every note, and it goes a little something like this. And I'm sure that that's why the first time that I had to write lyrics, it was not a problem because Julie had told me what to do. So yeah, Julie's very important, but if we are going to talk about screen goddesses, I've got to speak about Margot. <laughs> you know, I told you I met Mark Cousins the other day. We had a little um, exchange afterwards and he um, said, said that he was buzzing like a bee after our meeting. And so you can guess what I replied. I, I wrote back and I said, we're all busy little bees full of stings, making honey day and night, aren't we, honey? <laughs> I, I said, name that movie. And of course he knew it. And so I first saw um, All About Eve in the 80s. Even though the film makes it really clear, I wasn't onto Eve the first time I watched it. It felt to me like the fact that she was a villainess was a twist. And then I watched it with my friend and my friend was just like, oh, every time Eve opened her mouth, she's she, she, <laughs> like, oh God, just, you know. I'm like, really, are you onto her already? And she was like, yes. I've lost count of how many times I've watched All About Eve. It's beautifully played by everybody in it. Um, Bet is wonderful, but the script is the star of the show, I would say. Yeah, I've lost count of how many times I've watched All About Eve now. I'm very, very, very fond of Margot. And one of the things that happens with All About Eve <laughs> is that I go back to it for like, you know, my umpteenth viewing. And it's like, oh my God, I say that all the time. They're the obvious lines like fasten your seatbelt is going to be a bumpy night. Well, I don't really say that, but there are all of these other little things hidden in the script. Like, oh my God, whenever I get myself into that sort of situation, I use that line every time. My um, communication with others is possessed by Margot Channing. Speaking of bet, I mean, another wonderful appearance was in James Baldwin, who 
In my teenage years, James Baldwin found me. I walked into my classroom one afternoon and there was Giovanni's room on a desk. Nobody claimed it. And I read that book. I was mystified by it. It was like, this: where's the sex? Basically. <laughs> but then um, shortly after that, James Baldwin's name came up again because the local theatre company was doing a production of The Amen Corner. And then I came back to the UK in 1987 and I saw the price of the ticket. Um, stunning um, 1987 documentary at the ICA. And that's when, you know, James really cemented with me and became a hero. And there's this wonderful essay he does called, it's either The Devil Finds Work or The Price of the Ticket. But he's speaking about seeing Joan Crawford in the movies and meeting a woman who walked into a shop one day, looked at him and said, and whose little boy are you? And she looked like Joan Crawford. And then one day he's at home with his mother, very conscious of himself as an ugly young man and thinking that his mother is ugly too. And they see Bette Davis on the television and James Baldwin says to his mother, oh my God, mother, she looks like us or we look like her, you know. For, for James Baldwin, it was, yes, you can be famous. Yes, you can be glamorous and wealthy um, and you don't have to look like Joan Crawford. I'm so glad that you brought up James Baldwin because there's been such a resurgence of interest in him among younger people since the whole Black Lives Matter movement because so many things that he said, they could have been said a couple of years ago. James Baldwin was a prophet. It is that whole meta sense that he brings to his work where he's like, okay, this is not one person behaving this way. This is several people behaving this way. And if they behave this way as one, therefore... Woke is a much maligned and misunderstood word, but I think that um, James Baldwin basically woke himself up and he knew that he wanted to be famous, that fame was the only way that his prophecy would be heard. But he pursued fame by going to the library and reading everything that he could so that he knew what everybody was saying and thinking. And so when he exploded into people's living rooms, like he did on the Dick Cavett show, it was, well, yes, he's black and yes, he's uppity, but you can't fault his knowledge. He knows he had tremendously fiery recall and, um, he spent some quality time with Marlon too. <laughs> uh, I love that he and Marlon were living together before either of them were famous. So um, when they both succeeded, their friendship was still their friendship. But I love that relationship. James Baldwin, I kind of went to um, San Francisco for the first time. And I went to Berkeley and I bought the complete essays. And I'm constantly upgrading the collection. I loved what Ravel Peck did with I Am Not Your Negro. I think that was a wonderful essay. And then I really loved that another hero, um, Barry Jenkins, created Moonlight. And that for him, he saw Moonlight as the first of a trilogy. And that the next episode of that trilogy was... If Beale Street Could Talk, another James Baldwin novel, which I hadn't read until I heard he was working on it. And I immediately read that. And 
I think even for James, that even though he was out and conscious that the civil rights movement referred to him as Martin Luther Queen and courageous enough to abandon his um, European escape to return to America to participate in the civil rights struggle. I think despite all of that, I think that he always was more interested in speaking up for his people than he was for his sexuality. I think if he had spoken up for his sexuality more that it would have been recorded, but not necessarily listened to, to the extent that it was because he very cleverly um, decided to tell a white love story in Europe about homosexuality as his second novel in the 1950s. I mean, my God, that's some serious courage, but he had to remove it from himself sufficiently, I think. And then elsewhere, I think it tended to be an examination of bisexuality. I think that all of that is fair enough. But then I also know that I am not the only black queer man who cites him as, you know, a personal hero. And I actually quite enjoy that, that, um, you know, all of these people who write about James as if though he is theirs. I absolutely claim him as mine. Nobody could dispute the fact that Baldwin was extraordinarily courageous. I mean, I, I listened again recently to the, the big university debate at was it Cambridge, I think, considering how inexperienced he was at that point at doing that kind of public debate and also being thrown into the lion's den and coming out on top the way that he did. That took balls. Yeah, the book to read, dear listener, is um, The Fire is Upon Us. William Buckley Jr. referred to James Baldwin as an eloquent menace. I've really enjoyed discovering William F. Buckley Jr. Because the first time I saw that debate, it was like, who is this fool? You know, who is this awful human being? You know, James Baldwin was a big name at the time. They didn't want to give him an individual slot at Cambridge. They wanted him to debate somebody and they looked around for an American senator who might have a discussion with him. No, no American senators were up for it. And so they, they turned to William Buckley, who had been watching him from the vantage point of the National Review. It's a fascinating reconstruction. The book's called The Fire is Upon Us. It's about five years old. From that backdrop, I would also advance Katanji Jackson, Katanji Brown Jackson as another hero. She's the um, Supreme Court Justice who was recently confirmed. And I tell you, I had no idea that I was gonna respond to it in that way. I thought, okay, she's gonna go through a bit of a grueling, but I just really felt that all the Republicans who participated in that just told her that she was black. Every black issue under the sun that, you know, ruffles the feathers of a Republican was just thrown at this woman. And throughout it all, she breathed. And sometimes she'd pause because she knew that these people were tearing her apart. And she'd pause, compose herself, and then present her answer. She's not stupid. She's a black American woman who's lived through all of that history. And she knew what was coming. And she handled it. And that's some heroic stuff. <laughs> some major heroic stuff. We've discussed a very diverse range of people, people that you know personally, people that you admire from afar. Are there qualities that you think they share, being principled and being outspoken and saying your truth? Um, I think it's to do with 
being black and gay, being a singer as well, being a lover of the word, loving art, all of these things, you know, that make my character. One of the more disturbing things to me that I get older is how much I've had to deal with racism and homophobia. I think that people are dealing with me or have been dealing with me in a way that I've been completely unaware of. And sometimes a situation, an interaction with a person becomes too unpleasant too soon. And I'm probably too naive at the time to figure out, oh, they're being homophobic, they're being racist. I realise that all my life, that's, what's, that's what was going on. Those moments where I couldn't understand why somebody was behaving that way towards me. Why is this person shouting at me? Why is this person being so rude, so mean, so dismissive? And it's like, because you're black, because you're black and gay as well, which is another reason I love James Baldwin, because James Baldwin on a talk show, I feel like it was Parkinson. It was Parkinson. Parkinson said something about, so you're black and homosexual, like, whoa. And he said, yeah, I hit the jackpot. That's a reason to make a hero of somebody. Like, he went publicly and he said, it's special that you are these things, you know, because they are two things that the whole of society will damn into the ground, you know, but you've hit the jackpot. Kitanji Brown, I started out by speaking about my mother and my sister. It's like watching them go through that, you know, an illustration of a public mauling that reflects what my mother and my sister had to go through um, in society and an explanation of why it is that they don't want to leave the Caribbean. You know, once my sister, who left here when she was 13, and my mother, who had been here for 16 years, once they got back, they never came back here. And I can understand why. Because too often, simplify the language, what people are saying to you is, this is what you are, this is what we see. I had a falling out with Bernard over the sound of McCalmont and Butler. Bernard and I have repaired that relationship. You know, we're friends now. And I realised with hindsight that actually the organisation was just toxically dealing with me being a black queer talent that they had to market. I think I've also always been aware that I was black and gay, so everything wasn't going to be handed to me. And so a lot of the heroes that I refer to are people who broke through, people who are good at what they do, and by sheer force of talent. Shirley Bassey, black woman, from Wales, raised on Judy Garland and Al Jolson, becomes the biggest black star that Britain has ever produced. Julie, English Rose from Walton on Thames, raised to sing like a bird, ends up in Son of a Bitch, revealing her breasts. <laughs> Katanji Brown Jackson, a long career in the legal system, has the opportunity to become the first black woman Supreme Court justice in the United States, has to brace herself to like go through all this shit to be confirmed. James Baldwin saying, I am not going to stay in this country. If I stay in this country, I'm going to kill a white person and my life is going to be destroyed. So I'm going to Paris and I'll, I'll starve and I'll go into a Swiss chalet where there are no black people for hundreds of miles around and create great art. I mean, that makes living worthwhile.
My thanks to David McCalmont for being such a great guest. And for details of upcoming gigs and new releases, please follow him on Instagram at david.mcalmont. Coming up soon on We Can Be Heroes. This is really such a wonderful idea for a podcast because you not only hear about the celebrity or the icon that someone's chosen to talk about, but you also get a real insight as to why they chose them. She wasn't like any man or woman that I had ever experienced before. And I remember saying to my parents, but, but like, but what is she? And my parents just went, she's Grace Jones. This has been We Can Be Heroes with me, Paul Burston. Please subscribe and join me next time. Thanks for listening.